ask you this morning as we read and study this, this is a tough one. But I'm going to ask that you take some more time to consider your sin and your rebellion. And not anybody else's sin against you. So often when we think about the lives that we're living and and the difficulties maybe that we're having, the struggles that go on in us, we immediately start thinking about the people who have hurt or violated or impacted us in a negative way. Those who have sinned against us. And this morning, I just ask you not go there. As we talk about, and we are going to talk about rebellion, I want to encourage you to only consider your rebellion and the Lord's response to it. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Indeed, Father, this is a law that would make any child, any parent, hear of it and fear. This is one of those, Lord, that at a cursory glance, people will use to say, Father, that you are condemning a harsh judge. And Father, we know this not to be true. We know because Jesus, you came and you explained God to us in such a way that we know. We know your character is grace. We know that your character, Father, is love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and redemption. And yet we run into a passage like this and we wonder, what were you doing, Lord? Can you explain to us? Can you help us to understand? And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you help us understand this morning not only what this meant to Israel, but what it means to us today. That we might be impacted by your word and secured in our hope also, Father, by your word. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This has got to be among the most shocking verses in the Bible. That a parent with a rebellious child who will not listen, who is out of control, and I've seen many of them in, in the time that I spent in youth ministry, many, many times where parents would come to me and their son or daughter would be completely out of control. I've seen kids sent off to brat, brat camp. I've seen kids go into counseling. I've seen kids go all sorts of places to try and fix the outrageous rebellion that was unfixable by the parents. But in Israel's day, the law was very simple. You got that problem, you don't send them to brat camp. You send them to the elders at the edge of the town and they were stoned to death. End of story. And I remember the first time I heard this, I was sharing on Wednesday night. I was a young lad, a wee lad, as it were. And my dad shared it with me when I was in a place of some rebellion. You know what they did to kids in Israel when they acted like you're acting right now, and on we went. And I was, I was shocked. They, they 
you wouldn't really stone me, would you? I was curious in studying this. I was curious about how my son Hayden would react to this news. And so I walked out of my office Thursday morning, walked over to where Hayden was. It's Friday. And I walked out to where Hayden was sitting. I said, Hayden, I want to read a verse to you, and I'm just curious what your reaction is. And so I read, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, or read down through, uh, you shall remove evil from it, stone him to death. I read that, and I looked at Hayden, and his eyes got real big, and he just said, don't hurt me. <laughs> I explained to him, no, 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 son, this is a law for Israel. And he said, well, I'm not going to Israel with you. <laughs> it's a frightening passage. Not just for children, though. It's a frightening passage for parents because any parent who loves their child can't imagine watching them being stoned to death. What does this passage tell us? What does it explain, it explain to us? Well, verse 21 says, after it says they stoned him to death, it says, So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. And this is what's going on. That you will hear and fear. God lays down these laws, and oftentimes, especially with Israel, early on, He would lay down the law and make it extra, extra specially harsh so that the people would not go there. As opposed to being kind of soft, and then they go there anyway, and there has to be punishment. God says right up front, listen, if you're rebellious, the punishment is death. So don't be rebellious. This is before Jesus came. Before grace was offered. God was doing something here through Israel. Teaching us what the extremity of our sin really was about. That as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And so God lays it out as a law because God is deadly serious about rebellion. Now I've shared this before. I don't believe sin is the root issue. I believe rebellion is the root issue which causes sin. That we have, as human beings, we are born with a rebellious heart. It's what makes the two-year-old child in the grocery store, when told by mom or dad to go this way, go the opposite way. Rebellion at a very early age is present in the human heart and it continues throughout our lives. It's why we ever sin because we've got this issue of rebellion. It is something natural to us. And yet rebellion, gang, is worthy of death. God is deadly serious about rebellion. Why so serious, Lord? Well, first of all, because it's rebellion that kicks Satan out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 says how you have fallen from heaven O star of the morning O son of the dawn you have been cut down to the earth you who have weakened the nations you see Satan wasn't always this evil incarnate thing he was the Bible indicates to us an anointed cherub Ezekiel 28 verse 14 you were the anointed cherub who covers I placed you there you were on the holy mountain of God you walked in the midst of the stones of fire you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. The Bible tells us Satan was like all the angels, a created being, but who was anointed with beauty and grace. As a matter of fact, if you read more out of those two passages out of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you can discover some things about Satan, that he was a worship leader, that music was in him, that he was present in heaven, and you could almost say he was God's worship leader. But he rebelled against the Lord. Let angels in rebellion against the Father, the Bible tells us. And so he was cast out. God is deadly serious about rebellion. Because it was rebellion that booted Lucifer from heaven. It was also a rebellion gang that introduced sin into the world. 
Where did Satan go after he was booted out of heaven? Right down here. And in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember the story of Adam and Eve, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy. Romans chapter 5. Because something happened in the garden that you and I would do well to pay attention to. Adam and Eve created place in the garden, place in Eden. That place was a wonderful perfection. It was a, a beautiful, perfect place. And they were given all of Eden to tend and to care for as gardeners. And to walk there in the cool of the day with their father. Perfect relationship, intimacy, the intimacy that God wants for us. But they sinned, they rebelled against God's command. And they didn't have a whole lot of commands, by the way. Think about this, they had one. Don't eat of that tree. That was the only law on the books. Which tells me that if we were living in a world where there was just one law, we'd break it. We would find a way to violate it, and that's what Eve did. And of course, Adam came stupidly along behind her, and he violated that law too. And Paul, referring back to this, in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, says the following. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. That word imputed means charged to your account. Reckoned. Sin is not charged against you when there's no law because you don't even know that you're sinning. Paul's saying. But sin was in the world. Even though it wasn't seen. Even though it wasn't recognized. Even though the flashlight of what sin was wasn't shining. It was still there. Sin was in the world. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, which, by the way, means everybody. You don't have to sin like Adam to sin. The reason that you have sin in your life is not because Adam's sin somehow stuck to you, by the way. He just sinned in his way. You and I find our own ways to sin. Not in the likeness of Adam, but with the rebellious heart that is in our nature, we found a way. And we have sinned, not in the likeness of the offense of Adam, but then Paul throws this one in, who is a type of him who was to come. What does that mean? Adam was a type of him who was to come. Well, him who was to come here, gang, is talking about Jesus Christ. So you think, wait a minute, okay, so Adam sinned. How is he a type of Jesus? Adam's sin spread like a virus, a cancer, to all people, and all people sinned. In the same way, the grace of Jesus Christ spreads like a cure to all people. Has the ability, even more powerfully than the sin of Adam, to spread out over all mankind to anyone who would receive and accept it, to anyone who would, as Les talked about this morning, just confess it to him. I am a sinner. I am not perfect. Even as, as much as I try to fool myself and dress it up, I am still a sinner and I still need grace. And if you cry that out to the Lord Jesus, guess what? His cure can spread to you. Amen. That is good news. But before we get there, hold that thought. Because there are a couple of key words back in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that I want us to consider and understand describing the son who is deserving of being stoned to death. The two words are stubborn and rebellious. Stubborn and rebellious. I want you to hear the, the words in the Hebrew and understand them. And you might say, well, Rick, why are you always giving us Hebrew and Greek definitions? 
seems like every sermon there's at least one word that you know like some weird sound to it and you throw it out there and you expect us to remember it I give you the definitions because definitions are critical to understanding just this last week my daughter Hannah was giving an assignment in English class and the assignment was to write down things that are uh, what, what was the word? Underrated. underrated write down a list of ten things that are underrated now I asked her permission to share this so just so you know our relationship is good uh, ten things that are underrated Hannah didn't know what underrated meant. She didn't know what the definition was. She asked a friend, and her friend said, oh, it's just something bad. So she wrote on her list of things that are underrated, smoking, alcoholism, (laughs) homosexuality. (laughs) This is a pastor's daughter saying homosexuality is underrated. Definitions are important. You need to know what the words mean. And so consider this for a moment. The word stubborn. The word stubborn when related to this to this son deserving of death. The word stubborn is an attitude problem. It's the Hebrew word sarar. And it means morally unresponsive. Morally unresponsive. You tell the person what's right, doesn't make any difference. You show them the right path, doesn't matter. But there's something else in this word, sarar, that is important to understand. It also means, Christians listen to this, backslidden. In other words, you've been there. You know what's right, but you choose not to do it. The Hebrew writer puts it this way, and this is an even more difficult passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. How many of you have backslidden? How many of you, when you hear that passage, think, wait a minute, that's me. Am I in trouble? I haven't been in church in years. I haven't been following Jesus for, I did as a kid, and I haven't, is that me? Does that mean I have no hope of repentance? Why am I even here if that's the case? Do you ever question whether or not because of your own sinful attitude or your sinful past or you're having fallen away or backslidden that you could end up lost eternally. John chapter 10 verse 25 the Jews had just asked Jesus if he was the Christ to tell them plainly. For those of you who wonder did Jesus ever really say who he was he did absolutely over and over. The Jews were not hearing it they said hey look if you're the Messiah if you are Mashiach, the one who is supposed to save, if that's you, would you just tell us? And listen to what Jesus says in verse 25, John 10. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one, listen to this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, Jesus says, once I've got you, I've got you. Once you're in my hand, you're there. 
He goes on beyond that. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now I read that verse and I hear eternal security. And I like that verse. I'm very happy in that verse. I'd rather stay in that verse and forget the Hebrew verse altogether. I'm in the hand of Jesus, the hand of the Father. In fact, you're talking two hands that are holding me. I can't be let go. He's got me. And that's a great place to be. So, is John the Apostle and the writer of Hebrews in conflict with each other? One is saying, hey, once you listen to Jesus' voice, He won't let you go. And the other one's saying, hey, if you've tasted of the Spirit and tasted of the Word and tasted of all the goodness of God, and then you fall away, there's no returning, there's no repentance. How do these things work together? I've said this before, I will say it again. You can't lose your salvation, but you can leave your salvation. You can't lose it. God's not going to let you go. But you can choose to walk out of His hand. You can choose to say, I don't want any of you, Lord Jesus. No one, be it Satan or any other force, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one can pull you out of the grace embrace of Jesus Christ. But you can walk out. God's not taking anybody kicking and screaming into heaven. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. No, you're coming. You're coming. God doesn't work that way. What He will do is save you if you want to be saved. It's that simple. How many of you, and no need to raise your hands, can rightly say at some point in your life you were in Christ and then you walked away? I think it would apply to an awful lot of us. So the question is, once I walk away, fall down, backslide, sarar in the Hebrew, does this mean I can't come back? Now listen carefully. The Holy Spirit, through the Hebrew writer, is laying down a very, very serious warning. Not that you can't repent and return. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, there is a stubborn point of no return. There is a place the human heart can get to where the human heart will not choose to repent anymore. Having tasted all that is good of God and then rejected it, there is a point of no return. If you have loved Jesus at one point and fallen away at another point, the question is, how close to that point of no return did you get? The answer is very simple. This is the attitude of the, of the stubborn son. But to, to have gone this far and to stubbornly reject the Lord is to cross the line of no repentance. There is a place. So how do I know if I've crossed that line? I'll tell you, and listen to me. If you crossed the line of no repentance, you would not be here this morning. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't even think twice about Jesus. You wouldn't pursue the Lord. You wouldn't, and especially this, you wouldn't have a single pain of guilt over the life that you're living. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Sorrow of the world just produces death. The stubborn heart, the heart that has crossed that line and gone too far, rebelled against God so dramatically that they have crossed the place of no return, that heart will not feel godly sorrow. That heart is not going to be experiencing guilt over behavior and actions. That heart is just going to say, whatever. 
Now I have talked to several in this fellowship who are experiencing, even at this time, pain over decisions in their life. Fear that maybe because of their brokenness, they are not going to be safe in the Father's hands. If you feel that pain, guess what? You're safe. Because it's godly sorrow that produces in you that heart of repentance. You wouldn't feel the godly sorrow if you didn't have that heart of repentance. If you're capable of repentance, you haven't crossed that line. Why does the Holy Spirit draw that line at all? So that we can see it in black and white. A thick, dark line that no son will cross. The Hebrew passage is written the same reason that the Deuteronomy passage is written for. It's to draw a serious line. That we can look at that line and say, oh, I'm not going there. I'm not going near there. I don't want to have anything to do with there. And so every son or daughter raised in Israel would know that law and say, okay, all it would take, think about it, all it would take for a parent of a rebellious child is just to say, <laughs> Deuteronomy 18 through 21, sorry dad, we're cool, I'll be home on time tonight, I apologize. The Hebrew passage, the Deuteronomy passage, these are warnings. Danger. There is a place that the human heart can go that is too far. Praise the Lord that if you have a single tinge of guilt or sorrow in your heart over the sin in your life, you haven't gone too far. He is at this moment convicting and wants to draw you into His heart. Stubbornness. It's an attitude problem. The second word is rebellion or rebellious. And rebellious is an action problem. This is putting hands and feet on the stubbornness. This is taking sarar in the Hebrew and moving to the word in the Hebrew is mara. Mara. It means rebellious, provocatively disobedient. And verse 20 describes this disobedience with words like glutton, drunkard. The picture drawn here is is one of a child, of, of a son, wildly out of control, doing his own thing, But Bible students, does this word Mara in the Hebrew sound familiar to any of you? It means bitterness. Bitter. It's used back in Exodus chapter 15 verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, finally a watered place. Oh joy, water. They rush up, they begin to taste it. It's bitter. They could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Mara. Now this interests me, because the word rebellion, or translated rebellion, is the same word that's translated bitterness. It's astounding. Because I used to think that bitterness was the result of what other people did to me. Turns out, biblically, bitterness is the result of your own rebellion. If you have bitterness in your life toward other people, toward situations, guess what? It's not their fault. It's rebellion in your heart. The heart of rebellion is a heart that produces bitterness. In fact, you could put it this way, today's bitterness is born out of yesterday's rebellion. That's a tough word. That means I've got to be responsible for me. Because if i got a problem with other people, guess what? <laughs> it is my problem. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. 
that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, but it, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person, listen to this example, like Esau. Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau's problem was not Jacob. Esau's problem, the Hebrew writer tells us, was his own sin. It was his own rejection of his birthright. It was his own rebellion against the things of his family, his father, his God. Esau rebelled and later ended up bitter because of it. Astounding. But it is not the sin of others against you that causes bitterness in your life. It is your sin, it is my rebellion that causes bitterness for me. Now many of us would say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair because I've had people violate me. I have had people abuse me. I have had people hurt me. Yes, and I'm sure that's painful and I'm sure it's difficult. But I'll tell you what, the difference between the person who's gone through that and can walk in peace in the Lord and the person who's gone through that and holds on to bitterness is the person who is not bitter has recognized their rebellion and sought for forgiveness. That's the difference. Are you wrapped up in bitterness in your life? You know what the answer is? Repent. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Give give it over to Him. Stop looking at the person who sinned against you and consider for a moment your sin against the Lord Jesus because that's what's keeping you in that place. Not what's been done to or against you. I know hearing this that there are those who would say that's not fair. I'm the wounded party. I'm the victim. I'm the one who's hurt. It's not fair. And that's the cry of a bitter heart. It's not fair. The moment those words escape our lips what we're saying is Lord you're not fair. And we we fail to recognize our own sin. Listen, I I can't pretend to understand some of the pain that some of you feel in your lives. I don't I don't pretend to at all. I'm not standing up here saying, Oh, I you know, I've been there and so I, I get it. Because I don't. I realize and I recognize in this world and in this farm this morning, there is pain that goes far beyond anything else I have ever experienced. But I can offer you a biblical prescription for your hurt, for your sorrow. And that is let godly sorrow lead you to repentance. It's funny, every time I dealt with a rebellious teenager, every time without fail, when I would sit down with a teenager and parent in the same room and begin to talk, bitterness spewed out. Because bitterness comes out of our own rebellion. And we can't change the actions of other people. We can't mold those or shape those or make people respond differently or act differently than they have against us in the past. What we can do is deal with ourselves. You cannot go back and remold a stubborn, rebellious father or a bitter mother. You can't do it. Some of you have parents who violated you in some way and then have died since. What do you do with that? How do you ever fix that mess? I'll tell you how. You go to your Father, your Heavenly Father, and you repent for what's in your life. You can't go back and change that other stuff, but you can't have the peace of Jesus Christ in you, in your own repentance. He is the only one who is able to wipe out the bitter tears. Repentance is the only answer to assuaging bitter, stubborn rebellion. Repentance, that is, 
or death. And those are the two very clear options in the scriptures. Repentance or death. Look at verse 22 back in chapter 21. Because here's the wonder. Here's the blessing. Here's how this all comes together and really works. This whole law about the stubborn and rebellious son, that he shall be stoned to death, is followed is followed by these two verses. If a man has considered a, committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now listen, God is not random. Now we had some interesting study on Wednesday night, some, some laws that kind of flew into here, and then there was one from over here and one from over there, and it seems for a moment that maybe it was a little random. God is never random. The scriptures are placed where they're placed on purpose. And so we have this law, this ordinance of the rebellious son, followed by a man who's committed a sin worthy of death, who is hung. And what do you do with that? The guy's hung on the tree, and then as he's hanging there, make sure you don't leave him 24 hours. There's a slight problem with this. Capital punishment, as ordained by God in Israel, was never done by hanging. This verse is irrelevant to Israel. This verse makes no sense because the capital punishment in Israel was, as we just read, stoning. It was stoning, not hanging. They were never called to hang someone. I looked this up. You can look through all the Hebrew scriptures. There's not a single place where someone is called to be hung for their sin. Stoned to death, yes. Never hung. And so God says, well, yeah, but if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, that is rebellion leading to death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, but Lord, why put this law in here? It has nothing to do with Israel. It will never happen. We're just going to stone people. It's more fun. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> What's the deal? Why is this passage here? Why does God insert this in such an odd place? Moses says, If any man has committed a sin worthy of death, and gang, before we say anything else, recognize that's you. And that's me. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what God is referring to in this verse. That's the good news. In the days of Rome, the Jewish people recognized this verse, which is why as soon as the person was crucified, hung up, as it were, on that tree, as soon as they were crucified, the Jewish people had to get them down off the tree or cross, not allowing the corpse to hang up there 24 hours, to hang overnight. Even today, Jewish funerals have to happen within 24 hours of the death. That is standard business among Jews. Someone dies, the funeral's got to be right away, 24 hours. Why? Because of this verse and others. You bury immediately. Frank, is Frank God this weekend? So did this other person pass away then? Okay, we need to pray for the Jureski families and for Frank because he's now down in San Francisco, California, California area, second time in, in, a, in a week for a funeral. And he was talking to me about this. And this morning he flew out and they asked him to speak at the synagogue, so I hope everybody would pray that the Lord anoint him before he's going to say. They asked him to speak at the synagogue? No, that's the only time he's in Bar Mitzvah. So. Wow. I don't Let, know what they're going to be in for. But. Can we pause just for a moment and pray for Frank? Let's do that. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be on Frank. What an opportunity, Father. 
I pray, Father, that as Jesus stood up in the synagogue and began to speak the truth, that Frank would be able to stand up in the synagogue and preach the truth about Jesus. Would you give him boldness and, Father, an ability to speak your words with the right timing, sensitive to your people Israel, but bringing the truth. Father, be with Frank. And I pray you'll give him peace in his heart because I know it's been a difficult week for him. Bless him and bless his family. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's amazing. So Frank's speaking in the synagogue, but it's two weekends now in a row where he's had to fly down to the drop of a hat because if a Jewish person dies, 24 hours the funeral happens. You just got to drop everything and go. And Mark chapter 15 verse 42 tells us when evening had already come. Because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why? Because you couldn't let him hang up there for 24 hours. Because cursed is the person who hangs on the tree. What does this have to do with the rebellious son? Why does God place it where he does? It has everything to do with it because the Apostle Paul reaches back to the seemingly obscure verse about hanging and attaches it to Jesus Christ, which is where it belonged in the first place. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Listen, rebellious sons, rebellious daughters, we all deserved to be on that tree. That cross was not Jesus' cross. That cross was your cross. That cross was my cross. Because of our sin and our rebellion, that's where we belonged. That's how every one of us should die. In our sins, cursed on a tree. In our stubbornness. In our prodigal living. And we should have but one response from our Heavenly Father, and that's death. But you know what's absolutely amazing? When it came time for God to decide, consider how He decided. A woman was caught in adultery, caught in the act, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. She's thrown at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, as it were, seemingly violates His own law. She has committed a sin worthy of death. The men say, should we stone her? And what does Jesus say? Yeah, go ahead, but make sure it's the one that doesn't have any sin. Any of you who are sinless, go ahead, throw the first stone. There was one person in the crowd that day who had the right to stone her to death, and it was Jesus Christ. He was the only person without sin. And by this law, he should have picked up a stone and began throwing it at her. He didn't. He said to her, go your way and sin no more. How could you do this, Jesus? How could you violate your own law? He didn't. Because Jesus knew that the time was coming very quickly when this law would be completely fulfilled by Him. He would take the place of that rebellious daughter. He would take the place of the rebellious son. He even gave us the most probably quoted story out of the Bible to confirm this fact. The story of a son who rebels against his father, goes off to a distant land, takes all of his money and inheritance, and becomes exactly as the Deuteronomy verse tells us, a glutton and a drunkard. A rebellious son. 
He squanders, loses it all, comes back to his father. And the Jewish crowd listening to the story that day must have thought, Oh, man, here it comes. He's going to be walking up the road. Dad's going to see him. The men are going to gather around and the stones are going to fly. They would have been absolutely shocked at the conclusion of Jesus' story that we just take so much for granted. That the father saw his son and began running toward him. (laughs) Now the son must have been thinking, Oh no, here he comes. I'm post... But he didn't run toward him picking up stones. He ran toward him with his arms open. He embraced his son. He called for the fatty calf. Then he called for a new robe and a ring and new shoes for his son. Dress him, clean him up, let's celebrate, let's have a party. And in this story, the father violates the law of Moses. That son should have been stoned. The rabbi from Galilee, he's unbiblical. He obviously doesn't truly know our traditions, our scriptures. Our laws. I mentioned this Wednesday night. Numerous times God violated this law of the rebellious son being stoned to death. Adam and Eve should have immediately died in the garden. It was only grace that allowed them to live. Ultimately they did die. David and Bathsheba both should have immediately been stoned to death for their acts of adultery. Jesus with the adulterous woman, the prodigal son, in every case, death was the punishment and death was deserved. But I said Wednesday night that God violated his own law and I was wrong. God did not violate his own law. He kept it perfectly by sending his own son. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is so deadly serious about rebellion that he sent his own son to die for our rebellion. That Jesus would be a curse for you and for me. And that is amazing grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. Now listen. Because if you miss this last point, you will misunderstand the teachings of the Old Testament completely. If you miss this last point, you'll misunderstand the teachings of the law and the prophets. And as a matter of fact, you're going to misunderstand the more exacting demands of Jesus Christ himself. More exacting? Well, the Old Testament law was hard. Jesus brought grace. Listen to this. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says not the smallest letter or stroke will pass from the law. And it's interesting to see that written out because in the Hebrew, the smallest letter is Yod. It's the tiny little letter, Yod. And the smallest stroke is a dot that indicates vowels because there are no vowels in the Hebrew language. So you've got Yod and you've got a tiny little dot that's placed somewhere around the letter to indicate a vowel or a pronunciation. It's kind of like the dot above the English letter I. Jesus says not even that tiny little dot passes from the law. Jesus says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus took laws like murder and said, you know what, it's not just murder, it's being angry. 
He took laws like adultery and says, not just adultery, it's lust. He made the law harder, more intense, more exacting. Why? Because the law and the teachings were not given to condemn us, but to convict us. This law, all the way back to the rebellious son, was not because God desired to see a single son of Israel stoned to death. It was to convict that that would never happen. And as far as we know, it didn't. As far as we know, rebellious sons of Israel, this law didn't happen, at least from the scriptures. Although we do see Stephen stoned to death in what they believed was rebellion. It's all here, gang, not to condemn us, but to convict us, to show us that we are sinners, that we are the rebellious son, every one of us. And if you're sitting there going, okay, heavy enough, Rick, (laughs) then listen, because it's godly sorrow which leads to repentance, not fluffy marshmallow sermons. There's enough of that in the church today. It is godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. It's recognizing the failure. It's accepting that we are sinners that makes a person cry out and say, I need a Savior. Because I want to be one of those who is in the hand of Jesus, who is in the hand of God, that no one can pull away. I want that security, that absolute assurance that I will be with the Lord forever. And gang, listen, I am not condemned when I read the Word of God, no matter how difficult it may be. I am convicted often. There are many times I just closed it up and I did this week a couple of times and just went, okay. (laughs) Really? You want me to say this? Are you sure? Can't we like go to a nice, soft, fun place in the New Testament? Condemnation, that's from Satan. Conviction, that's from the Lord. And if you are convicted over sin in your life and you feel guilt... God created guilt too. Why? I don't like the way it feels. Good. Repent. Turn from the direction you're headed. Turn to the Lord and repent. Are you stubbornly holding on to your own supposed goodness? Are you one who says, hey, I'm good enough to get in? My response to that is, good luck. Because you're not. I don't care how good you are. And I know that there are a lot of you out here who are much better as people than I am. But it's not going to save you. Only the grace of Jesus Christ, who became the rebellious son in our place, not through his own rebellion, he took on our rebellion, and who was cursed hanging on that tree where we should have been. Maybe you just decided to cash it all in for outright rebellion in your life. Maybe you've decided, I'm sick of trying to be good. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm through with that then you're in the perfect place to repent and to turn to Jesus. Because you will not be saved by your goodness. Maybe you're still living in the bitterness of past hurt and sin. Reality is, King, I'm not here to make you feel better this morning. That's not my job. God can do that. And my intention is to point you to the one who can save to the one who can heal, to the one who can bring about joy instead of bitterness in your life.